Hello, this is Cedric Dawkins. Let me introduce today's guest. Michael O'Leary studied philosophy at Harvard and earned an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Professionally, he was on the founding team of Bain Capital's Social Impact Fund. Prior to that, he invested in consumer, industrial, and technology companies through Bain Capital's private equity fund. Michael has also served as an economic policy advisor in the United States Senate and on two presidential campaigns. Currently, he is managing director at Engine Number no. One, an investment firm purpose-built to create long-term value by driving positive impact. He is also co-author of the book, Accountable, The Rise of Citizen Capitalism. Episodes in Ethics, uh, thanks for stopping in. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. So let's start with Bain Capital. Certainly one of the preeminent equity firms in the country. I uh, got a lot of attention when Mitt Romney was running for president. What kinds of lessons did you glean from your time there? You know, it's funny because I joined right around that time in 2012. Mm-hmm. And when I accepted the offer to join, when you did a Google search for Bain Capital, you got some press releases, a few deal announcements. But for the most part, it, like most big institutional investors, kind of flew under the radar. Right. Um, and then I joined the firm uh, on the private equity team. And suddenly, I remember we were getting headlines that were like, Bain Capital's vulture capitalism is destroying America. You know, right. And I'm sitting there as a, you know, a junior analyst, a junior associate, seeing these headlines. And, and I'd studied ethics as an undergrad. I was a philosophy major mm-hmm. in college. Um, and so suddenly I'm, I'm starting to struggle a lot with these questions of you know, what responsibilities do investors have? Um, what responsibilities to the companies they have, to the, the broader stakeholders of the companies? I didn't have this language um, to think right. about it. You know, impact investing back in 2012, I'm not sure if the, the term had been coined yet, but if it had, it was still early days. Right. Um, and what I came to recognize was that you know, bank capital, big private equity firms, you know, hedge funds, activist hedge funds, a lot of these um, players that you know, some folks will point out as, as the villains of capitalism say, that they were doing everything capitalism asks of them. The problem was we just weren't asking enough of capitalism. Okay. But this idea that maximizing short-term profits, that you know, it's up to the government or it's up to philanthropists to take care of the rest and, and that investors really only needed to focus on maximizing earnings, that that model, which, which maybe worked or maybe had broader acceptance for a long time was, was in some ways fundamentally broken. And that this movement, you know, so I was at Bain Capital on the private equity side. And then when we launched an impact investing fund in 2015, the former governor of Massachusetts joined our firm to lead that effort. Uh, and I joined him in that. I think these movements around impact investing and ESG are this recognition that investors have a greater set of duties, greater set of obligations, greater set of responsibilities than just maximizing short-term profits. So in essence, Bain Capital was doing what capitalism required of it, but well, it, the requirements weren't suitable. And, and in many ways, you know, I was always, the, the tough thing about seeing those news headlines and then walking the halls of Bain Capital is the people there are genuinely good people who genuinely wanted to do the right thing, genuinely cared about building big, successful companies that grew and, and had uh, big, happy, well-paid workforces and that had products that you know help people in their lives. But I will say, they, like most investors, in my experience, also abided by this pretty traditional bifurcation 
in their lives. Mm-hmm. They, they bifurcate their lives into one part economic and one part moral. Okay. The economic part of their lives, you know, how they invest, uh, where they shop, um, the jobs they choose to take. You know, and, and I'm not talking about bank capital. I'm talking more broadly about most people in the investing world. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they hold those decisions separate from their moral or ethical decisions in terms of you know, where they donate money or how they vote in the political election. And it's this kind of separation. Warren Buffett is a perfect example of an investor. You know, could not be a more successful, legendary investor, right. but takes this very traditional view on things like corporate social responsibility. You know, he's going to donate 99% of his money to charity by the time he dies or after he passes mm-hmm. away. So it's not that he lacks any kind of moral character. He just believes that the right way to affect change on social and environmental issues is through the way you vote, the way you donate money. And then when it comes to investing, you know, that's about efficiency, productivity, you know, net income, profits. It's not about corporate social responsibility and some of these other concerns. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, you kind of touched on the two, the two topics I wanted to cover today. I mean, the, the first is the book, Accountable and Citizen Capitalism. And, and then the second would be the new firm, engine number one. Yeah. So starting with citizen capitalism, I've assigned a paper in my class on divestment. Serendipitously, that paper is how you and I met. That's right. It's same, the same paper. Why don't you tell our audience how you came across the article and where you take issue with it? I think one of the most fascinating trends in this kind of broader responsible capitalism movement is that issue exactly, is divestment. And it's, it's fascinating to me, one, because of its just monumental growth over the last decade. I, I don't know the latest figures, but something like $13 trillion of assets have been committed uh, to divesting oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, you have this huge push um, and, and real fervency on the part of its supporters. You know, it, they take it as, when you trace the divestment movement's lineage you know, back to apartheid, all the way back to um, you know, Quakers refusing to invest in, in anything that was related to slavery. Mm-hmm. These are deeply moral roots, and that's reflected in, in the fervency with which a lot of the supporters approach the question. And I think what's so fascinating about the movement is you then hold that side by side with what is the theory of change? Uh, what, what are the actual results? What does the academic research say about the efficacy of the divestment movement in both traditional ways, like increasing the cost of capital to oil and gas companies, um, or even in broader ways of leading to climate legislation. Mm-hmm. And we, we decided in our book, Accountable, uh, which I wrote with another partner for Being Capital, um, who had helped launch the impact fund there. Uh, we decided to look at divestment specifically. Um, and, we, and we focused in on the divestment movement at Harvard right now. Spent a bunch of time with the student protesters there, you know, yes. attended their meetings, um, hearing you know, the way they were talking about these issues, understanding how they approach these questions. Um, mm-hmm. And it's such a fascinating area to to look because I think in many ways it throws into sharp relief the issues that that we're seeing come to fore in the sustainability movement, the the um, uh, responsible capitalism movement. And uh-huh. and so in researching that, I was trying to get kind of a background of understanding, um, you know, from an academic point of view, what are the theories that are underlying divestment, you know, uh, evidence that they're successful or unsuccessful. And mm-hmm. I came across your paper. Uh, and I think one reason uh, why I was so drawn to it was, you know, partly because I had studied philosophy as an undergrad and this idea of, you know, separating out absolutes from relatives, 
um, mm-hmm. was really interesting to me, but also because it was it was taking this view of let's combine, you know, let, let's both think about this as a moral absolute question. You know, if you believe in climate change and the way it's going to impact different communities, and you believe that it is your responsibility as a citizen of this planet to do everything you can to fight it, mm-hmm. then the idea that you would then hold in your portfolio ExxonMobil and Chevron and BP, there is something hypocritical, you know, intuitively hypocritical about that. Uh-huh. Um, and on the other hand, and, and you also focus on this in the paper, is this question of efficacy of, you know, what actually happens if I sell my, sell my shares? You know, it, it, what, what pressure does that actually exert on the company? Or am I just giving up my seat at the table? Am I mm-hmm. just giving up my vote? Right. Um, and, and these are big, meaty, hard questions for which the, you know, the jury is out. And I continue to this day to have, you know, real debates with the uh, folks who are leading that divestment movement about, you know, what side is the right side to come down on. But and that's why I'd come across your paper and reached out because th- 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 that's the underlying tension to the movement. Right. So in... In citizen capitalism, you you kind of touch on these these ways of reining in a free for all. Mm. If I can put it that way, mm. we have like corporate social responsibility as one means. We have divestment as another means. We have impact investing as another means. We have government control or or regulation as a as another means. Why don't you touch on those? and either how they come together or or why you might rule one or more of them out. Mm. Well, I think at the highest level, you know, we talked earlier about this, this bifurcation people take between their economic decisions and their moral decisions. I think at the highest level, what we're seeing is a, a sort of integration of those concerns. Where, mm-hmm. where, you know, and this is one thing that I think the divestment movement has absolutely 100% right on, which is if Harvard University or a foundation or a pension fund or whoever, but I'll take Harvard because that's what we wrote about. If Harvard as a university cares about climate change in, in what they teach and what research they fund and who they hire and the students they admit, mm-hmm. if they care about climate change, they should care about it in everything they do. Not everything they do, except for this $40 billion pool of capital they invest. Uh-huh. Right, uh-huh. and and if you go onto the the endowment website, you know they talk about the singular mission of the endowment being to fund the mission of the university, and yet in that conception they're ignoring the power that they have through the endowment. Now that's not to say they should necessarily divest or engage. It's just to say that if Harvard as an organization cares about a set of issues, it should care about them in everything it does, mm-hmm. including the way it invests. And I think you're seeing that happen too in consumer pressure on companies right. to better reflect their values, employee pressure increasingly. Um, one of my favorite examples on the consumer side was with the uh, Washington Redskins, where you know the owner of the Washington Redskins said, we will never change our name, never. Yeah. I mean, you, he, he said to a reporter, you can put that in all caps. I remember N-E-V-E-R, that. right? Right. And never became, you know, a summer ago or summer and a half ago when uh, they succumbed to pressure from the fans, from uh, other providers or advertisers, um, and they drop the name because ultimately, you know, in capitalism, corporations, you know, successful strategies must reflect the interests, the values, the preferences of consumers and employees and investors. So okay. at a very high level, the one thing that connects a lot of these trends together is this kind of uh, secular mega trend towards 
people integrating their values with their economic decisions. And I should say, oftentimes that's synonymous with a certain set of values, you know, um, uh, that might be more center left, you might say, mm -hmm. uh, but not always. Uh, you know, there's an example in 2000, uh, oh, that you wrote about in the paper. I was just looking this up the other day of Smith and Wesson, you know, the gun manufacturer right. yeah, that suddenly started, you know, in the wake of Columbine, they committed to all these sorts of things of, you know, we're not going to sell arms through dealers that don't do background checks. And, you know, this kind of checklist of if you were trying to be a socially responsible gun manufacturer, what you right. would do. Right. And they had immense amounts of consumer pushback from the NRA, from gun owners that nearly bankrupted the company. And so, you know, consumer pushback, you're representing the values of your stakeholders. Yes. It's not a liberal thing or a conservative thing. It is, you know, it, it spans the political spectrum. Now on the specifics, and I'll just, I'll hit, we, we can dive into any of them. I'll just hit like the two bullet points summary I've got for each. Uh -huh. So corporate, corporate response, corporate social responsibility. I think the traditional model is, you know, let's show we care through donating some portion of profits, okay. you know? And so this might be Coca-Cola donating to the special Olympics, right? Mm -hmm unrelated to the business model, unrelated to their core business, a wonderful thing to be donating money to. I don't mean to disparage you know, the right. cause, oh, yeah. but somewhat tangential to uh -huh. the core of the business. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you look at total corporate donations as a percent of revenue, and it's something like one fifth of 1%, right? Okay. These corporations dominated our world, but not through their corporate social responsibility practices. And so where, where that needs to go and, and where we're increasingly seeing some hope um, is businesses that are focusing Instead of, instead of on these kind of tangential things, instead on the core of what they do. So for an example, Danone, the French food giant, mm -hmm. the shareholders voted this past summer to convert the company into the French equivalent of a, a benefit corporation, where they mm -hmm. said the purpose of Danone is, and they put this in their charter, health through food to as many people as possible. Okay. Right? That is core to their business, and they're trying to reorient around that mission. Mm -hmm. So corporate social responsibility, the more it gets to the core of, of their business, the better. On, uh, on divestment, I think the key takeaway for sure is we need to include our values in our investment decisions. Now, the question of, um, you know, do you do that by divesting from companies you disagree with or sectors you disagree with, or do you do it by trying to um, wield as much influence and power as you can as a shareholder? The answer to that question, I think, hinges on, one, how, um, how effective you think you can be mm -hmm. in... Um, in those sorts of engagements. And there's, I think, broad debate and we're still figuring it out. You know, and I think we're still just seeing the beginnings. I, one good example would be Rio Tinto, the mining company in Australia. Yes. Um, over the summer, they destroyed this Aboriginal, ancient Aboriginal site um, uh, when they were uh, digging a new mine. And right. as a result, the shareholders rebelled and they forced out the CEO of the company. Not because, you know, uh, you know they missed earnings that quarter, but because they've taken this action that's so deeply conflicted with the values of the shareholder base. Yeah. Um, and so that's a great example of where, you know, engagement, if they, if they had instead divested from the company, the CEO would still be there, right? So depending how effective you think it is, um, but that, that's a debate we're diving into more. Impact investing, the, I'll try to go even faster. I'm, I'm, well, I'm like, not, don't worry. You wanna stop there? No, don't worry about that. I'm saying, don't worry about going faster. Okay. I'm just, I'm smiling because I read that entire article about Rio Tinto. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, so we're reading the same things. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it is such a great example of, of shareholders 
you know, exercising their power. I mean, I think that's one thing actually that we forget, especially in like, I'm sure you're following you know, the GameStop and the Robin Hood yes. and like, you know, the rise of the retail investors. One problem with what's been happening uh, with, with something like game, uh, something like Robin Hood is it continues this kind of separation, this conceptual separation between investing and ownership. You know, we're investing through the Robin Hood app where it's kind of gamified and, you know, you're very much focused on kind of the speculating aspects of investing mm -hmm. and not and not so much on the, I am now a owner of this company. I am now, you know, 0.0001% responsible for what this company yeah. does. Yeah. I, you know, I elect a board that's supposed to represent my views. The board hires an executive team that then executes on those views. You know, like corporations are modeled after democracies and republics. Um, and, you know, we can lose sight of that. It's something that like the Rio Tinto example is such a great case of shareholder, shareholders exercising their power as owners of the company um, and saying, you know, if we disagree with the CEO, we can get a new CEO. Um, yeah, the Robin Hood, the, the Robin Hood issue kind of, it kind of raises a question about what happens when the shareholders don't care about the company. Mm, totally. They're, they're not interested in how it's run. They're not interested in its longevity. They're not long-term investors. They're surprised that they're even in the position that they're in. Uh, it's another I mean, example of the capitalism that you had mentioned, not, uh, not providing constraints, only this time it's on the shareholders themselves. And, and what we know, we know is when you look at just retail investors, the fewer than one in 10 retail investors vote in annual uh, meetings, fewer right. than one in 10. My guess is that if you just looked at Robinhood users, it'd be even less than that. You know, if a Robinhood user owns a stock and they get, you know, this email of a proxy statement, you know, this long PDF, you know, like who's actually going to open that up, right? Yeah. Now, you know, what's interesting though is like, it's not like, you know, most mutual funds and hedge funds were the paragons of investment stewardship and responsible long-term ownership. And we also know that the average hold period for a stock is measured in you know, months, not years, much less mm -hmm. decades. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, oftentimes their concerns were just from an economic basis was, you know, how do I maximize the value of these companies this quarter and this year? Because that's the basis that I, as a mutual fund manager or a hedge fund manager are judged on. Mm -hmm. you know, and so, you know, I think you're totally right that there's this breakdown within the retail investor base, but there's the breakdown in the institutional investor base too. I mean, that's okay. a, a lot of when we started thinking about solutions coming out of the book was thinking about, so how do we fix this broken financial system where you know on one end of the spectrum or one end of this long chain, you've got companies which exist for decades, if not century or longer. On the other end of the spectrum, or the other end of this value chain, you've got individuals who are saving for retirement, saving for their kids' college, saving to buy a house. You know, their time horizons are similarly years, if not decades or longer. But then every other party within the chain between the companies and the actual end investors, their incentives are short-term, quarterly, annual. And mm -hmm. so as a result, even though it's both in the best interest of companies and the end investors to focus on things like, you know, diversity in the workforce and living wages and the health impacts of their products and the sustainability of their operations, because all the intermediaries aren't similarly aligned, you have this breakdown. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, I think, one of the fundamental failures of our kind of global intermediated form of capitalism All right. that we have. I want to ask you then about 
about engine engine number one, but 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 first, will you touch on impact investing? Yeah, yeah. Let me touch on impact investing and then just a word on government. So impact investing, obviously, I am a huge advocate. I helped build the impact investment fund at, at Bain Capital. The new firm that we'll talk on talk about, engine number one, is an impact firm. Um, uh -huh. I think what impact investing does, you know, I should say also, impact investing is a huge tent. It spans from you know, Gates Foundation, Omidio Network, philanthropists doing things like micro lending in India. Um, okay. You know, that's kind of the, the most traditional sort of impact investing that people think of, World Bank sort of stuff. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got investors like Bain Capital or TPG or KKR, or now more public uh, investment firms who are uh, focused on both doing good and doing well. And it's such so a big, a big tent. Okay. I'll say the exciting thing about the, 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 the part of the spectrum that I come from, you know, the traditional investors who are now launching impact investing funds, mm -hmm. is this, this recognition, it's this recognition that doing the right thing, focusing on stakeholders, focusing on climate change, that this doesn't come at the cost to shareholders as an expense to shareholders, that actually this might just be a better way to invest. That okay. understanding risk today requires you to understand what are called ESG issues. Uh -huh. And understanding growth opportunities requires you to understand, uh, you know, the impact you're having on your customers and the motivation your employees have. Uh, and I think it's proving that out, proving that impact investing is not some sort of soft concessionary, you're giving something up, but instead right. is, is a better way to think about building value in companies. The problem is impact investing is still some fraction of 1% of global assets under management. And so... You know, Warren, my co-author, and I like to say, you know, impact investing will not change the world, but its example might. And so to the extent that impact investing is to be you know, judged as success, it'll have to be that its practices, its theories uh, are more broadly adopted by traditional investors. Okay. Uh, and so you know, will impact investing continue to exist five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now as a distinct form of investing? I don't think so. I think ultimately, you know, the practice of impact investing will become adopted by mainstream investors. But today it's still radical enough that, you know, people have to wave the flag of their impact or wave the flag that they are not impact. Do you think that, that Milton Friedman would, would be an impact investor? I mean, he's not going to, he's not going to align with it ideologically necessarily, but it seems that the argument might be this isn't for altruism. This is just because it makes better investment sense. Yeah, so here's what I would say on Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, you know, I would argue, was wrong for the right reasons. He had this idea that, that is now almost universally adopted, that corporations are owned by shareholders and therefore should be run in the best interest of shareholders. And I think on that he was right. Okay. But then he went one step further and said, and what shareholders care about is maximizing profits. And if you believe the efficient markets hypothesis, then what maximizing you know, the long-term value for the company uh, into the future can be approximated by just maximizing today's share price, mm -hmm. right? And like that, that was kind of the embodiment. Corporations are run for shareholders. Shareholders want to maximize their long-term value, which can be approximated by maximizing share price today. I think he was right in general. The corporations should be run in the interest of their owners. What he was wrong though is that, you know, if I look at the average shareholder today, the median shareholder in America, 
the median shareholder in America is like 51 years old with $60,000 in a 401k account. Okay. And the money they've got invested usually is invested in index funds or broadly diversified mutual funds. The best interest of the average shareholder today is essentially the decades long sustainable development of the global economy, right? That's what would actually benefit, you know, I'm thinking about my own retirement account. I own through a couple of different Vanguard funds, I think something like 15,000 stocks mm-hmm. around the world. I can't even access that capital for decades, right? And so if corporations are gonna be run in my best interest, they should be run in ways that are sustainable, that are equitable, that are inclusive, that are beneficial. You know, and so I think Milton Freeman was right that, that these corporations should ultimately reflect my own interests, but he was wrong that my interests are so narrowly focused on maximizing share price today. Oh, I see. I see. All right. I, I, I was just kind of curious about that. I know I was taking you off track. <laughs> you were going to say no, something good. about, about uh, government. Yeah, well, especially I think now with, um, with the new administration, there's, there's real energy around saying, you know, if there's something broken about corporations, you know, we've got a lever that we can use to fix it, and that's government. And I think there is some truth to that. There are certain things like disclosures right now. If you think about, you know, government is intimately involved in what the financial disclosures companies have to make to shareholders. Um, and, and as a result, it is standardized, it's audited, it's transparent. You know, if you look up what are the top 10 companies by revenue, uh, you know, in America or worldwide, you'll see the same top 10 companies on every list because you all have come to an agreement on what those metrics should be. But when it comes to environmental or social metrics, it's the complete opposite. It's the wild west out there. Where if you look up, you know, what are the top 10 most sustainable or the greenest companies, you'd be lucky to find one company that's on multiple lists. Okay. Because all the metrics are Uh self-reported, they're not standardized. And so that's an obvious area where the SEC, where FASB, like all these accounting standards bureaus come Mm -hmm. together um, and put forth standard metrics that companies should report on. That sort of disclosure to me seems like very basic. Um, you know, that's the sort of work we do together through government that makes sense. But I would also be wary of having government go too far in trying to regulate this behavior as, a po- as opposed to um, having shareholders push companies to reflect their values or consumers mm-hmm. or employees. And the, and the reason is, um, you know, if you look at India, India passed a corporate social responsibility law that mm-hmm. mandated that all companies uh, above a certain size donate something like 2%, I want to say 2.5% of profits to charity. And the result was that years after implementing that law, any company that was already donating money but donating more reduced their donations down to the 2.5%. So what was meant to be a floor also became a ceiling. Mm -hmm. And then something like a third or half half the companies had found ways to avoid having to donate at all through all these different loopholes and exceptionary cases. Sure. And so the risk is that you know, we've developed an economy where we say corporations should maximize profits within the bounds of the law. That is all of their responsibility. And the risk if, if we expand the law is in some ways we are more deeply entrenching that ideology. The corporations have no responsibility beyond the law, beyond the thin line mm-hmm. of the law. And so you know, I worked for a Democratic senator. I've worked on Democratic presidential campaigns. I'm a big believer in the power of government to play a, a role in solving this. But I think it's it, the problems we face around inequality and climate change and beyond are so massive that it can't be a problem that government solves alone. We mm-hmm. have to think about all the different ways that investors and employees and consumers um, can also help solve these problems. Sure. 
And uh, citizen capitalism is making a case for citizens to be active in terms of their responsibility in their purchases for workers to voice their, their concerns, make their workplace responsible, government to provide regulation, you know, the corporation to be broad enough to pursue uh, more than one objective at the, at the same time. Is that fair? Yes, and, and I would say we're not so much, you know, advocating for those movements as we are identifying them. Uh -huh. you, know, you can see uh, there, there's any number of white papers and research reports out there. They're showing the rising interest among consumers to, you know, vote with their wallets, essentially, okay. on a lot of these issues. I mean, the, the reason why the largest organic retailer in America right now is not Whole Foods, but it's Walmart, is because consumers want to buy organic milk. And Walmart, as a you know, capitalist enterprise, is more than happy to oblige. Yes. Uh, and the same thing, I think, I think consumer side, we've seen that for a long time. You know, things like PETA and mm -hmm. organizations that are trying to get consumers to, to understand the impact of their decisions. Where it's really exciting to me right now is on the employee side, where you know, you've seen walkouts over sexual harassment problems at companies like Google or around you know, the, the um, work that companies are doing with government contractors, uh, like at Palantir. Um, and so I think the employee side is interesting. And of course, the investor side, where you've just yeah. seen meteoric rise in things like um, ESG funds. Mm -hmm. You know, the ESG funds in the ETF world, you know, kind of the consumer retail um, investment market, more than doubled last year. It's something like $40 billion now of assets under management, um, starting from an extremely small base. But you're just seeing a huge pickup as people are demanding more and better investment products that reflect their values. Sure. Um, tell us about engine number one and, and tell us how you got the name as well. Yeah. So engine number one, I, um, you know, coming out of the book process, you know, I was starting to work out, uh, you know, cause I'm not a, a writer by training, both my co-author and I come from the investing world and, and the plan was always to go back to it. Um, and through the book, I met this investor, Chris James and, and it was, it was through this investor, Chris James, um, who, who ultimately founded Engine Number One. And you know, his experience, he'd been a, a hedge fund investor for decades, very successful um, going back into the 90s. And you know, his realization over the last few years had been that the most important long-term drivers of value were increasingly falling under the bucket of what other folks called ESG. Mm -hmm. um, and that part of the driver of that was greater understanding of the impact the companies were having. So for instance, as we get better and better metrics around the impact of carbon emissions and simultaneously get better and better metrics around which companies are responsible for those emissions, that that allows us as investors to recognize, you know, wow, these two otherwise identical companies, you know, one is much more exposed to future climate reg uh, regulation or legislation, um, to potential disruption, related to climate risks. And therefore, you know, I should change my valuation of one company versus another, depending on how they're doing on, on those sorts of like, you know, what are usually called ESG factors. Uh -huh. and, and so he recognized that bringing more and more of these sorts of, you know, ESG measures into the valuation discussion, into the investment discussion, does not make you necessarily a more moral investor, but it does make you a better investor. Okay. Um, and he was recognizing this at the same time recognizing kind of what we've already been talking about um, on this podcast, that 
you know, this idea that you should maximize profits in your investment portfolio and then donate to charity, then oftentimes that puts you in conflict with yourself. There's a sort of cognitive dissonance between making your money off of a traditional oil and gas company and then donating it to climate change causes. You know, that you could you could be more impactful if you combine those. Right. And so, you know, I started working with him. We built this team of investors who are both committed to the idea that the companies will be most valuable long-term are the ones that are creating most value for their stakeholders, for their workers and communities and the environment. And then, and, and then also recognizing that the way you can have impact as an investor, especially in the public markets, is by being an active owner, is by you know, voting your shares in a certain way, by engaging with companies a certain way, by working with other shareholders, other stakeholder groups to, to affect change. Uh, and, so, and so those are kind of the underlying theses of the firm. Um, and what we're building now is a series of investment products that we, you know, we hope will embody those theses really well. The, the phrase engine number one, I think, you know, there's, there's a couple of different you know, source material where it, it comes from. My, my favorite is this idea that you go back to the 1800s, 1700s, mm-hmm. and almost all the firehouses in America, all the fire departments in America were private organizations. You know, they were private citizens coming together to fight a public problem. Okay. And I think the same is true with what we're doing here, which is you know, we've recognized um, the way in which the capital markets are broken, the way in which our financial system is not creating outcomes that are sustainable and inclusive and just, and, and in many ways are underperforming the sort of prosperity they could be generating for companies and for stakeholders. Um, and that, that, that's something that we think that we as active market participants, as investors can actually um, work to change. Sounds promising. I've got it bookmarked now, so <laughs> I'll be able to peek in and see what's see what's going on with it. Yeah, no, I appreciate the opportunity. You know, I think one myth you know, we're taught about economics all the way back to when we take intro econ back in college is, is this idea of the invisible hand, um, that somehow market forces are separate from us, that you know, the market is impersonal, it exists somehow above and beyond its constituents. When in reality, you know, our economy is just a reflection of all of our individual decisions. The decisions we make on what to buy and where to shop and on where to work and, and how we invest. Um, and I think when you dispel this myth of the invisible hand and focus instead on you know, the idea that markets are just reflections of our decisions, I find it empowering. Um, mm-hmm. And I find it empowering in two ways. One, because then I think of you know, in my kind of private role as a shopper and as an investor and um, and in choosing what job I'm going to take, mm-hmm. I recognize that, you know, I can do my own small part in pushing companies to better reflect my values. I also find it empowering to start to think about, you know, the businesses I can help build, the products I can help launch. I sort of think, you know, if I, and this is very true of, you know, millennials, Gen Z, younger generations, but also older generations um, increasingly as well, you know, if I can be ahead of these trends and I can start companies that themselves are better reflections of people's values that are more focused on um, you know, doing beneficial things for my stakeholders, my workers, my customers, that that is a real advantage I can have in the marketplace. And I will say one thing I've, I've started to recognize in helping to build engine number one is the degree to which you know, big um, established players, you know, it's hard to transition. It's hard to transform. You, know, you can only change, you know, so much each year. It's like a you know, freight. Uh, it's like a freight train trying to stop, or an ocean liner trying to turn. Uh-huh. You know, there's there's so much momentum. 
Um, and I think one thing that you know we in, in trying to create new products, build new businesses can do is if you're starting from scratch, you don't have to deal with the baggage of you know billions of dollars of legacy assets or of legacy customers. You can create oh. something that that you know is is leaning forward on the front foot on all these yeah. social environmental issues. And so that's what's exciting to me now is, is seeing a lot of the new companies that are coming out, um, you know, being more socially oriented, more social enterprises, a lot of new products. You know, you look at GM's recent decision that by 2030, all of their cars will be electric. Mm-hmm. So that, that is a business decision, but it's a business decision that has huge implications for, for the environment, for society. And uh, I think increasingly, those two things are intertwined. The business decisions we make um, and their impact on society, I think, I think younger generations especially are recognizing how tied together those things are. And, and I think that gives me great hope for the direction that the economy can go in. Fantastic. Michael, you know, I said I wanted to have you come out to the university, and I still do. We have a big group of uh, social purpose-driven students in the MBA program. Um, and so I look forward to that. Thank you very you. much for sharing some time with the, with, the, with the group. We're glad to have had you. Thank you.